You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to Lesson 9, where we are going to continue to look at modern trends in Christology. We're going to pick up with Edward Skillebeck's and then finish with trends away from Christ and then move back trends towards Christ. For Edward Skillebeck, who has been another Catholic theologian that has had much influence among many theologians, we again find an approach to theology that is not comfortable with the classical formulations, not comfortable with the classical theological approach to Christ. And Skillebeck's, following many of the modern influence, says we have to again to turn to the subject. For Skillebeck's, we have to give the priority to experience. I usually call his theology, really, it's the theology, the priority of experience. And his book on Christ is actually called Christ, the Experience of the Lord Jesus. And what he means by this is that Christology is really the experience of the Lord Jesus, and therefore Christology cannot be confined or limited to dogmas as linguistic formulations. For him, language is separated from experience. And of course, as soon as we say that, we have to ask the question, yes, experiences cannot be fully grasped with language, but since we are linguistic beings, all our experience is somehow shaped by language. Another way of putting it is that our experience as we experience it is irrevocably shaped by language. I mean, this is a kind of philosophical objection to Skillebeck's approach, is that it's really philosophically naive to think that there's some kind of experience floating around in us that somehow we can get to apart from the linguistic formulations. Even if, obviously, as the church has always taught, the reality of God is greater than our words about him. The reality of the incarnation, the reality of the hypostatic union is much greater than the creeds of Chalcedon and Nicaea. But nonetheless, those linguistic formulations are the necessary roots, are necessary, at least you know, after the fact, once they've been announced. If we deny them, we will run away from that experience of the reality of our God. So another way of putting it is that, that it's philosophically naive to think that somehow experience can be separated from our language, such that we can find new language and dogmas. This also, by the way, goes back to the treatment by Lessing. Well, Lessing said that the accidental truths of history are separated from the necessary truths of reason. But again, that's philosophically naive. How else could we, human beings as historical creatures, ever come to truths apart from accidental truths of history? The only truths that human beings can ever come to are going to be truths that they encounter through through accidental truths of history, through our language, through our experiences. So, in a way, in response to Lessing, we might say that, you know, the only way that we are ever going to encounter truth of reason is through the truths of history because we are historical beings. But back to Skillebex, just as we are historical beings, we are also linguistic beings. But nonetheless, as I said, Skillebex wants to have his priority of experience. He actually talks specifically about a contrast experience. And what he means by this contrast experience is the experience of tremendous suffering, but the experience of tremendous suffering that is somehow overcome. This, for him, is really what Christ is all about. 
Christ is the perfect contrast experience. Christ has these great hopes for Israel, these great hopes for mankind, but nonetheless, they are all lost, all given up on the cross. Skillebex actually speaks of Christ as the complete and utter failure, as a complete and utter failure when he dies on the cross. And so what happens then is that his disciples, they see this Christ who has died. They see the failure and the loss of all their hopes and dreams. But then they gather together in the upper room, according to Skillebex, and they begin in one another to think about Christ, to think about what his life meant, to think about the truths he taught, to think about that, and they have an experience of the risen Lord. And it's not clear for Skillebex whether or not you need a physical resurrection. He's unclear whether or not it's simply enough that this disciple simply experience him spiritually because they're all profoundly happy and they realize that life can go on after his death. But again, because the physical resurrection is concrete, that can't be the heart of it. Skillbex wants to have this prior experience. So again, we have the subjective orientation, even though for Skillebex, it's more of a communal experience. It's a communal experience. Nonetheless, it's an experience that is not objective in the objective physicality of the resurrection or in the objective physicality of the church. To quote Skillebex in one line, he says this. I'm going to read this whole sentence. He says, Therefore, from a human point of view, redemption essentially implies, and listen to how he defines redemption, reconciliation with one's own finitude, coupled with radical love, even when one sees that it is in vain, in terms of visible success, is even an occasion for torture and execution. So from Christ's death and resurrection, what Skillebex garners is simply the idea of redemption, namely, we have to accept our own finitude, and we have to accept that our efforts may fail and may lead to this contrast experience. But again, this is purely, in a sense, a naturalization of the gospel, that it's simply man coming to terms with his own finitude instead of what is really the heart of Christianity, namely that man can become a child of God. That as 2 Peter 1.4 teaches, man actually becomes a sharer in the divine nature. So that man's finitude is accepted, yes, but it's accepted by seeing how Christ has transformed it by allowing it to share in the divine life. Turning from Skillebex, we have in a way a reaction against much of this kind of enlightenment trend to the subjective experiential dimension of religion in the figure of Hans Urs von Balthasar. Hans Urs von Balthasar really steps back from this whole approach to the transcendental through the subjective experience. And what he actually really focuses on is on the concrete reality. And Balthazar teaches, both in his treatment of Christ and his treatment of the church, that the only way that we encounter the mystery, the mystery which is transcendent, the only way we as human beings encounter that mystery is specifically through concrete forms. Human beings cannot come to know love, in a sense, in its universal capacity, unless they encounter a concrete form of love. Human beings are going to come to know the truth of Christ, who is ultimately a mystery, only by encountering his fleshly, concrete existence. Balthazar sees that this is really the heart of John 1.14, the Word became flesh. The utter mystery of God in his divine nature, the Word, becomes flesh, an incarnate, concrete man, an incarnate human nature such that now human beings 
can enter the transcendent mystery, but they only enter the transcendent mystery through the concrete reality. He actually speaks of Christ as a concrete analogy. He's a concrete analogy because through his concrete human nature, through his concrete teachings, through his concrete love, we are led to the, the utter mystery, the utter perfection of God. So the words and actions of Christ, although they are historical, are actually, they manifest the being of God, which is perfect transcendental. So we have here a marked shift from enlightenment modern approaches that very much emphasize subjective experience and are afraid of, in a sense, the concrete reality. Balthazar really takes the concrete reality as the necessary way to achieve this greater uh, awareness, this greater truth of the transcendent God. So because of this, he says actually that being Christ, he's both the icon of the Father in his divine nature, and he's also in the image and likeness of God in his human nature. So as, in a sense, his divine nature, the Word, he's the perfect image of God. As in his human nature, he's in the image of God. But Christ, this one being, this one person, is both the perfect icon of God and in the image, in the icon of God as man. But Balthazar often speaks of Christ in terms of a mission Christology. And what he means by a mission Christology is that in Christ, we have a perfect identity between Christ's mission and between Christ's person. What does that mean? Well, it means that who is Christ? What is this person? He is the person who is of the Father. He is the Son or the Word who is from the Father. What is his mission? His mission, as he describes it in the Gospels, is that he is the one who is sent from the Father. So that in both who he is eternally, he is from the Father, and who he is in history, in his mission, he is the one who is from the Father. So in Christ, we have a perfect identity between person and mission. And what we have then is the uniqueness of Christ. Because in the prophets of the Old Testament, we often have persons who are distinct from their missions. That we have persons who are simply like Elijah and Isaiah and other prophets. Moses, in a sense, they are human beings who have their lives, who have their own stories. Then they are called by God, sent on a mission, and then their mission then personalizes them, gives them in a way a new identity to their person. Their person, their identity as a person, changes through the gift of their mission. In Christ, however, we have a distinction here. Christ isn't simply a person who communicates a divine plan. But as Balthazar teaches, let me quote, he does not communicate a divine plan, but speaks as the personal word of God. So Christ is not a prophet. He is not a man who simply communicates what God is going to do. Neither like an Old Testament prophet or even like many of these modern forms of Christology, where Christ is really communicating a divine plan. He and his human nature is communicating for Schleiermacher the feeling of absolute dependence, for Lessing, right moral action, for Kant, simply the demands of reason alone, the demands of duty alone. For Rahner, this experience of freedom, and for Skillebeck's this contrast experience. No, he's not simply a man who's communicating a divine plan, but he is literally, as Balthazar puts it, he speaks as the personal word of God. So the personal word of God, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, speaks in human language, speaks in historical language. So therefore, we have 
this great reality that, again, the transcendent God is made present through concrete reality because the Word of God actually speaks a human language in Jesus Christ. And von Balthasar also shows how this then affects, in a sense, all Christians in terms of their hope you know, for Christianity, for what they can become. And just as I said for many of the other Enlightenment forms of Christology, Christ is reduced to a natural man, so then man's salvation, in a sense, is only on a human level. It's a horizontal salvation. It's not really entering the divine life. Well, Balthazar changes that because he sees that if in Christ we have the perfect identity between his mission, the one sent from the Father, and his person, the one who is of the Father, so that in us we have, in a way, the hope. And he says that everyone, every man in Christ, in Christo, I'm quoting here, in Christo, every man can cherish the hope of not remaining merely an individual conscious subject, not merely the hope of remaining a natural man, which all the other modern thinkers had emphasized that we've looked at. So not merely remaining an individual conscious subject, but of receiving personhood from God, becoming a person with a mission that is likewise defined in Christo, in Christ. So the gift of salvation, the gift of redemption for von Balthasar is that we are going to become like Christ. We are going to have our personhood, our mission, sent to us from God, not simply becoming a perfect human being on a natural level, not simply being a perfect individual conscious subject, according to, say, you know, Rahner, for instance, who would have emphasized that, but actually, in a sense, receiving personhood from God, again, sharing in the divine life. Here we have a supernatural, a divine plan that's fitting to the church's theology of Christ. The second thing I want to emphasize upon source from Balthazar is in a way a point where I think his theology or his Christology perhaps leads us into some dangers. And I want to just mention that briefly. Von Balthasar puts at the center of some parts of his Christology not only this question of the mission Christology, the identity between mission and person, but he also really focuses on Holy Saturday. And most Christians don't even really think much about Holy Saturday. They think of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But what happened on Holy Saturday? Well, on Holy Saturday, the church teaches that Christ descended into hell. And it's in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. What does that mean? Well, according to von Balthasar, as he interprets it, he wants to show that this descent into hell is a totally passive descent. Christ, in a way, doesn't descend into hell as the triumphant one. He, in a sense, is born down. He's carried down into hell. He is utterly passive because all of his activity is, in a sense, gone in his death. He's utterly passive. And on the cross and in his death, according to von Balthasar, Christ experiences the utter God-forsakenness of the damned. So that Christ on the cross and Christ on Holy Saturday experiences the utter God-forsakenness of the He is utterly left of God. He has no vision of God left. Von Balthasar also emphasizes this to show that he reasons such like this. If we see on the cross that the Son is utterly abandoned by the Father, then we also are going to see in the Trinity that the Son is, in a way, utterly abandoned by the Father. That in the Trinity, there is both perfect equality but also perfect separation. It literally speaks sometimes that the Father withholds knowledge from the Son. And I think at this point where von Balthasar begins to introduce a kind of negation into the Trinity, 
and a kind of utter abandonment of Christ on the cross, that that's where I think we have to pause and be careful about that. Because that's risking really, in a sense, denying the perfection of the Trinity and also uh, denying the basic truth that Christ, even on the cross, had hope. Pope John Paul II, in one of his apostolic letters around the millennium, called Novo Millennio Inuente, that came out January 6, 2001, where he set the tone for the next millennium. He literally in there specifically says that Jesus had hope on the cross, that even in the experience of suffering, even as he shared suffering, even as he died for others, he still had hope. He still had the vision of God. And von Balthasar also, by the way, will often interpret Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22. That's his important thing where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says, literally there, Jesus says it, therefore Jesus is utterly forsaken by God. But we have to recall that Psalm 22, which Jesus is quoting there, is ultimately a psalm about deliverance. In the beginning of Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But by the end of Psalm 22, the psalmist actually prays in thanksgiving that God has saved him, that God has delivered him. And so Christ, of course, yes, he is forsaken on the cross. He is given over to death. But God doesn't abandon him. God delivers him by raising him from the dead on the third day. So I think there are several reasons where it's very dangerous to think of Christ being utterly abandoned by God. The Word of God can never be abandoned by the Father because the Word is the perfect image of the Father. The Son is the perfect image of the Father. And as such, the Son and the Father have one intellect. They have one will. They have one nature that they share. And as such, this notion of introducing an utter negation between them and abandonment is quite dangerous. The next person I want to look at in terms of modern Christology is the theology of Pope John Paul II. The Christology of Pope John Paul II. And I want to look particularly at one of his early encyclicals, which was called Christ the Redeemer of Man, or Redemptor Hominis in the Latin. Christ the Redeemer of Man. In this, the Holy Father really draws our attention to that Christ is the Redeemer man. As he talks about it, he quotes the famous quote from Gaudium et Spes, Gaudium et Spes 22, perhaps the favorite quote of Pope John Paul II. And he says this, this is quoting Gaudium et Spes, Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, and listen to this carefully, makes man fully manifest to himself and brings light to his exalted vocation. So Christ brings the mystery of man most fully to man. Another way of putting it is that Christ reveals man to himself. And so, according to the Pope, what the Pope wants to show is that man, modern man particularly, has these deep longings, these deep questions, these deep thirsts for freedom, all these desires and hopes. And what the Pope sees when he looks at the 20th century, he sees that man has tried again and again to try to find something on earth that will satisfy him be it totalitarianism, totalitarian regimes such as Nazi socialism or communism or different elements or even kind of exclusively consumeristic materialism, perhaps in the West. Man is always looking for something in the world to satisfy him. And what the Pope wants to show is that man's desires are only going to be answered in Christ. In sense, that Christ is the answer to all of man's questions. He says that explicitly in his encyclical on moral theology and veritatis splendor, that Christ is the answer to all man's questions. And so what the Pope sees is that man, particularly modern man, is struggling for truth and that he has to see that Christ does not come to limit him. Christ 
as the enlightenment fear does not come to limit man's reason, to limit man's freedom. God doesn't frustrate man's ability to be truly man. Instead, Christ comes to make man most fully man. Almost in a way, going back to Irenaeus' quote from the early church, when he said that the glory of God is man fully alive. And the second part of that quote is that the life of man is to see God. So man fully alive is the glory of God, and man is only fully alive when he sees God. God doesn't take away our freedom. God actually gives us our freedom. And the Pope, in some of his writings on original sin, has actually said that the heart of original sin is that man begins to look at God as a tyrant, as a master, instead of seeing God as a father. So this whole modern fear of God is rooted in sin. And Christ comes to reveal that God is a loving father, that God wants man to most deeply realize his vocation, and that it's only in Christ that this can be accomplished. So the Pope writes in a couple different parts of this Redeemer man that I want to um, show you briefly. And I want to simply just show how he emphasized so much on freedom, but not that freedom in a sense naturalizes Christ, but that freedom is truly awakened in Christ. He says this, the human person's dignity itself becomes part of the content of that proclamation of the gospel. So that instead of the gospel frustrating human dignity, the gospel actually proclaims human dignity. The church becomes the greatest defender of human dignity, of the freedom of man. And she says that since he writes, man's true freedom is not found in everything that the various systems and individuals see and propagate as freedom. Again, what modernity offers is freedom. What consumeristic cultures offer is freedom. What communist regimes offer is freedom is not true to man. But he says that the church, because of her divine mission, has become all the more the guardian of this freedom, which is the condition and basis for the human person's true dignity. So again, here we have a fully orthodox Christology enunciated by the Pope. But again, the Pope doesn't simply represent Christology from the early centuries, the patristic or the medieval. He very much is in tune with the modern world. And so he understands the deep need for man subjectively to find his true happiness. But he begins with that and he says that that's exactly what Christ does. Christ gives us true freedom and the true freedom that man is looking for will only be found in Christ. I want to complete this lecture by just looking at briefly the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The section on Christology, the section on Jesus Christ and the Catechism of the Catholic Church is really a wonderful, really magisterial kind of collection of how the church thinks about Christ. It has at least three main parts. The first part, he begins with a meditation on what does it mean to say that I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, a line from the Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. And because of that, the Catechism begins by saying, when we call the name Jesus itself, what does that mean? Well, Jesus means God saves. And in paragraph 432, it says that when we call him Jesus, that name signifies that the very name of God is present in the person of his son, made man for the universal and definitive redemption from sins. So by looking at the name Jesus, we see that God is truly present in his son, in the man Jesus, the full divinity of Christ revealed, combined with the complete humanity. He looks at the word Christ, and the Catechism looks at the word Christ and says, again, Christ means the true anointed one or the Messiah. But it's not simply the one who is anointed like the Old Testament. He perfects the anointing in the Old Testament. He also shows the complete anointing. Lord, again, as we've already looked at in the third lesson when we looked at how St. Paul in Philippians 2 
calls that Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. To say that Christ is Lord is a divine title. Finally, they look at the title Son of God. And again, says that yes, the title Son of God was used in the Old Testament for kings, but when it's used of Christ, especially by Peter in Matthew 16, it is the fullness of revelation. It is the fullness of his truth that he is not simply a human Son of God, but he is a natural Son of God. The next two parts of the Catechism go through an extended meditation on the history of the creeds and controversies, which we've already gone through, and showing how does the church truly look at her bridegroom, truly look at Christ, who he is. And then the final part of the Catechism, in a way following St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas ended his Christology on the Vita Christi, the life of Christ. Well, the final part of the Catechism's treatment of Christology is precisely an extended meditation on the mysteries of Christ, Jesus' public life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit, that all of these parts of Christ's life are looked at by the Catechism and in a sense gleaned for an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.